Amen. <clears throat> if you have your Bible this morning, uh, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to be in Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning, um, studying one of the passages that is probably best known from the Old Testament. Um, and in particular, it's a passage that, that is quoted in the New Testament, claimed by the New Testament for understanding Jesus as much or more than any other passage in the Old Testament. It's a song known as the, the Song of the Suffering Servant. This is, uh, this is Holy Week, known as Holy Week by churches all around the world. It's, a, it's Palm Sunday, the day that we commemorate uh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem to the celebration of his people, celebrating him as the king who had come to bring liberation from all that threatens us. Um, it's the Sunday that we celebrate this ironic twist in the story of Jesus where he is hailed as king one day and less than a week later is crucified for claiming to be king. Holy Week exists in the tension that the Bible story tells us. A tension between this deliverer who is the the key to, to freeing us from all that threatens us both inside of us and outside of us but the fact that his power is ultimately displayed most in his death, in his relinquishing of all power in his giving of himself over to torture and ultimately death. It's an irony. It's a twist that just doesn't make sense. And it's where we, where we sit in Holy Week between Palm Sunday celebrating Jesus' kingship and Good Friday celebrating his death before we turn to his resurrection on Easter Sunday. In God's providence, we are, we are now in the middle of a series in Isaiah that has taken us directly to, a, to Isaiah's treatment of this tension. Uh, Isaiah is a huge book, lots of different themes. We're going into it for isolated texts that we think represent the themes of this book really well. And, and where we've come this week is to a section in Isaiah that's describing what God has done to save his people from the fact that they turned against him. What we've noticed in the, in the past couple of weeks is that the hopes of Israel for a new world through which using God's people as, a, as an instrument, God would bless all the nations those hopes had been narrowed further and further onto one single figure, a figure who has been revealed to us first as a king who would come to get rid of all that oppresses God's people, who would come to be, to be a wise counselor and a mighty God and a prince of peace, and, and that this one would establish the, the universe on terms that God had originally intended before sin had marred everything. This would be the king who would run out of the world all trace of evil and oppression. We noticed last week, though, through the first introduction to this figure called the servant, that it's not quite so simple as a king who comes with a massive army and wipes out all who oppose him. No, actually, actually, there's something different about this king. The king, the servant, is described in the same language as the king. He's doing the same thing that the king would do. He's the same person. But he, he will be humble and he will be gentle. He will care for those who are weak, rather than crush them, he will be long-suffering, we saw in Isaiah 42. And that trajectory comes to its fullness in Isaiah 52 and 53. Because the king described in Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 11, and the servant described in chapter 42 that we looked at last week, ultimately is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. Because the way that he gets exalted, the way that he becomes king, is to die. That's something no one expected. Our passage this morning starts out there. It starts with the 
the amazement of those who were looking on him that this is the one that was supposed to deliver us, and yet look at how he's treated. You can see it in verse 13, even before we read the passage together, just to show you that this, that this section is going to be playing in this tension between Jesus, and the, who is the servant, coming as king, and Jesus as servant being killed. The passage starts with his exaltation. He's high and lifted up. It's kingship language, right? But, but many were astonished at him. Because this is not what we would think of from a king. Look at why they're astonished. His appearance, verse 14 says, was so marred, beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He's so broken. He doesn't even look human anymore. In fact, no one believes that this is the one God has sent to deliver. Who has believed that he's heard from us? Isaiah 53, 1 says. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This figure is God's arm sent to save, and no one recognizes it. Because this is not what power looks like. In fact, verse 3 says, He is one from whom men hide their faces. His suffering is so grotesque, so horrible and unimaginable, that they can't even look at him. You know what that's like, right? I don't know if you're grossed out by gory movies. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But chances are all of us have some tolerance point where we just, we just have to look away. For me, it's, it's like broken bones and sports injuries. I remember uh, even this last season, I was watching this, this game with South Carolina, and I can't remember who else it was. And the running back for South Carolina, Marcus Lattimore, had his knee just completely destroyed. He was hit. One guy had him by the leg. Another guy hit him high, kind of around his thigh level, and it just snapped it right there on TV. And I just, I couldn't even look. It just, it just grosses me out. That's what we're saying here. This person who comes high and exalted, it's so beaten. It's so tortured. Has things done to him that people can't even, you can't even look at it. This, that's, the, that's the setting of this scene for us. Exaltation and suffering go together. The king is also the suffering servant. What we want to answer this morning, what we want to get a good grip on so that we're able to celebrate today, good Palm Sunday, Friday, Good Friday, and ultimately Easter Sunday, is why? Why? How does this work? That that he's crowned king by a suffering so brutal that no one could even look at him. This passage is, as as I've said, one one of four servant songs And it's a song that unfolds in five stanzas. It's beautiful. I wish we had time to really unpack the poetic beauty of this passage. We're not going to have time, and much of it is lost in the translation. But but the balance and the repetition, the rhyming, all the things that make for good and beautiful poetry are all through this passage in the the original language. And and one of the things about its structure is that it's in these five songs, five uh, stanzas of a song. we're not going to look at the first two. That's what I've just sort of summarized for you to help you see the scene as it's set up. Exaltation and suffering, that those two things go together. Where we're really going to drill down is starting on the third stanza, which is in verse 4 to verse 6, where the suffering of the servant is explained to us, why he had to suffer in order to be exalted. We're going to begin there. If you found the passage, would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word as I read? I'm going to read from verse uh, 14, or excuse me, verse 13 of chapter 52, all the way through the end of chapter 53. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, 
His appearance so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall He sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what He's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. God's promised redeemer who is a king and a servant at the same time, triumphs, becomes king through his suffering. This morning, what we want to do is unpack that suffering. I'm going to say three things about it from these last three stanzas of the song. That his suffering is substitutionary, that his suffering is voluntary, and that his suffering is obedient. First, his suffering is substitutionary. This is the heart of the passage, the heart of the explanation of why he had to suffer and ultimately the heart of Christianity itself. It starts in verses 4 to 6. The reason the servant suffers is that he serves as a substitute for his people. This this third verse is, is written almost like a an eyewitness to the events that are in verses 1 to 3, the beating and bruising and torture of this servant, so much so that people can't look at him. Those events are described now almost by an eyewitness describing what he saw. He says, well, first, when we saw this, we thought, surely he's being, he's being smitten by God for what he's done. 
Surely that's what's going on here. He is a horrible offender, done worse than maybe than anyone ever, ever has, given the way he's being treated. Surely God is punishing him, but it's more complicated than that. That's sort of true. God is smiting him and afflicting him, we're going to see. But the truth is actually deeper. The reality is he's smitten by God for our sins, not his own. That he bears the suffering that belongs to us. Now I want to get into the details here. I want you to notice in, this, in these three verses, four to six, there are two things about our experience that the servant carries for us. Two ways that he substitutes himself for us. Verse 4 says that he carries our sorrows and griefs. That's one thing. He bears our sorrows and our griefs. And then verse 5 and 6 say that he bears our sins or our iniquities. See, what you need to know about the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the, with, with the way the Bible describes the human problem, is that it, it, it's very balanced. It, it won't tolerate any explanation for what's wrong with us that says we're just victims, right? of what other people do to us. But it says that we really are victims, that oftentimes things do happen to us. Sorrows, uh, griefs, we, we're disappointed, we are, we are, uh, we're hurt by other people, sometimes even physically. We're weighed down by sorrow and by grief, but, but there's no explanation of our problem that's complete if we don't also acknowledge that we're weighed down, held back, given over to our sin. And in some sense, this servant bears both of those things. As one, one commentator put it, he, he is here wiping clean everything that's wrong with the human condition. Everything that blights our existence is here wiped clean. How does that work? I want to take each of them in turn. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I said the Bible never minimizes the fact that we experience pain that things are done to us by others or things, things happen to us in our experience that are beyond our control. We lose jobs, we get cancer, we're abused, sometimes even physically, often emotionally. We're disappointed, we get let down by other people. We fail to achieve our goals and all of this heaps on our shoulders a sorrow that we carry like a weight, like a, almost like a, like a rock that's, that's tied around our necks. And here we're told not that this servant will sympathize with us. We experience that sometimes even from each other. I know what that feels like, right? We're not told he's going to sympathize with us. We're told that he's going to carry them for us. What we're told is that he substitutes himself underneath the burden of our sorrows, that he takes whatever we've been carrying on our backs and throws it onto his own back. So it's not on ours anymore, it's on his. How can that happen? How can he carry the sorrows that are ours? We can't understand that yet, that question, until we understand what else it is that he carries for us. Verse 5 takes us into the deeper diagnosis of our condition that the Bible gives us. What the Bible tells us consistently, and right here in this passage, is that there's something deeper, something even more true to who we are that predates any grief or any sorrow that we experience in our life. That colors, in fact, how we experience and respond to our sorrow and our grief. That there's something in us that you could describe as almost like a fire. That, that our sorrows and griefs are just pouring gasoline on. That ultimately what's wrong with us, what defines us in this life, is our sin. The fact that we are rebels against the one who made us. He was wounded, we're told, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And he bore the chastisement or the punishment 
that was necessary for rebels, for traitors, to be made at peace with their rightful king. Ultimately, verse 6 gives us one of the best images in the Bible for what all of us are. We're sheep who have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The way the Bible talks about sin is this right here. A turning to your own way. A turning away from God and away from the needs of other people so that you see everything about your life as really about you. And ultimately, you see everything about others' lives as really about you. And if you even think about God, you might think about Him as really about you. That's what sin does to us. It turns us in on ourselves. We go our own way as if it's all about us. And we, we measure everything, our relationships with others and with God, if we even think of Him at all, in light of our needs, our desires, and our affections. And the Bible says there is no freedom from our sorrow from our griefs, from the things that happen to us that doesn't also include freedom from our sin, from the things we have done, from the things that we've not done, from the placing of ourselves at the heart of, of our lives. And that freedom from our sin as well as from our sorrow is precisely what this text promises us through the servant. What it says is that the servant has borne what punishment was necessary for our iniquities, our transgressions, our going of our own way. What it says is that Jesus stands for us, that he absorbs a punishment that's meant for us by taking on the punishment that brings us peace. This is the fundamental reality of of verses 4 to 6. Here's what it's telling you. That through the servant who we know in light of the New Testament to be Jesus, through the servant, through trust in him, We are accepted by God. We are at peace with the one who made us, who has promised to protect us, who promises healing in our sorrow, in our pain, in our grief. Here's here's the connection, I think. The question we started with is, how can Jesus take off of our backs things that we've experienced? Not just sympathize with us. He does that, too. But actually take our sorrows away from us so that they're not our burden to bear. And I mentioned that it, it, you've got to understand first that he's got to carry your sin because that's your deeper problem. So now bringing it back around, how is it that he can carry both, that he can substitute himself for us, both for our sin, taking the punishment that's due for that, and taking our sorrows and putting them on his own back? I think this is a little bit harder to understand, but the connection here, if you can make it, is the key to, I think, if you don't know Jesus, embracing him, seeing why what he offers you is exactly what you need. And if you do know Jesus, understanding this connection is the key to living in freedom and joy through the promises that are made to you in the gospel. Jesus can carry both our sorrows and our sins because through his death he has made peace with God. By his stripes we are healed. What's the connection? I think it's this. Jesus giving us peace with God because he has addressed the underlying problem of our sin gives us an identity before God that trumps all other identities we might build or claim for ourselves in this life the fact that we are accepted by the one who made us and for whom we were made is a more important reality than any other reality that we experience and the fact that Jesus can can get rid of the sin problem that kept it kept us from being accepted by God means that he bears the sorrows that might otherwise define us. Here's what I mean by that. Let me say more about that. 
One of the things about sorrow in this life is that it can alienate us from other people. A lot of times what we feel like is that people can't understand us because they haven't been through what we have been through. And they can't understand our pain. They don't know what it's like to be us. And, and really what we're saying, if we, if we say that, what we're saying is that the most important thing about who we are, what defines us as who we are, is this pain that we've experienced, the sorrows that have, that have been ours in our life. What we're saying is that you can't know me apart from my sorrows, that these are who I am. If we stay there, it can lead us to self-absorption, to just pouring more gas on the fire of our, of our self-centeredness, towards just almost wallowing in our pain as the thing that makes us who we are. What Jesus offers us, though, is an underlying reality that's far more important than the pain that we've experienced. What he says is that the pain might be real. He never minimizes it, though he himself even entered into it and took it. That pain is not who you are. You are accepted by God as a child of God, and that is who you are, one who is at peace with your maker. Here's, Here's an analogy that might help. I have, I've known a lot of friends over the years who had really important romantic relationships as kids, uh, maybe, maybe even as late as, as middle school or even high school, sometimes for years, like their whole high school years. I know of two or three in particular I'm thinking of. That, but basically their whole high school years, they were dating one person, and then it would end. Maybe they go off to college and it's all over. And they think that at that time their life is over, right? Their life had been this person, and, and it's deeply painful. It's real sorrow. But I've known these friends to go on a few years later to a wonderful, meaningful, life-giving, happy marriage with somebody else. Once they've married this other person, they're no longer defined by the real sorrow that they experienced when their high school sweetheart romance broke up. It doesn't make that sorrow less important, but it sort of offloads that sorrow because that sorrow has been replaced by a deeper and more fundamental reality. This relationship that they have now, the one that gives them identity now, What Jesus is promising us here is not that the things that are wrong in your life, the pain, the things that you're not responsible for, they've just happened to you. Not that they aren't important, but he's promising you an identity that is so much more meaningful, so much more valuable and eternal, that compared to it, it's like losing a high school romance compared to a 50-year meaningful marriage. He offloads the weight, the the life-defining weight of your sorrow by giving you something more defining. That's the promise of this passage. He stands for you as your substitute, makes peace for you with the one who made you, and therefore tells you you are not who you were. You are now a child of God. It's why one of my favorite hymns, and it comes with a great hymn story, is, uh, is uh, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, some of you may know the story. It was written by this guy who just knew all kinds of pain in his life. He, he lost his, all his property and the a huge fire in Chicago back in the 19th century. And then later on, he sent, his, he sent his wife and children across the Atlantic to England to visit family or friends or something. And along the way, they, they sank and all the children drowned. And he went to meet his wife in England to comfort her, be with her, and to mourn together. And along the way, he wrote one of our most everybody's favorite hymns, It Is Well With My Soul. I don't know if you've ever paid close attention to that song, but at the heart of that song is a meditation on Jesus' cross and on the fact that at the cross he bore our sins and gives us peace with God. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And he wrote that right after he wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows, verse 4, like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Now what taught him that it's well with his soul, whether there's sorrow or sin in his life? is the beautiful truth that in the cross of Jesus, God has made peace with him. That's the promise here. So Christians, are you willing to unload your pain and your sorrow onto the God who has come to you to bear them for you? That's a live question. One of the most natural responses to pain Emotional, physical, financial, whatever, is to live in it, to lie in it even. But do you realize that if, you're, if you give yourself to that, what you're saying is that what Jesus has provided you, his substitution for you, is not enough to wipe clean the weight of your sorrow? You're making a statement about him? The promise is that he is standing there waiting on you to offload Onto him. If you will accept and live from what he has promised you, peace with God. What about your shame? Are there things in, that you have done and said that you just can't outlive? That just dog you like a shadow that follows you everywhere you go? Are you even maybe even wallowing in your shame? I want you to see the image of this suffering servant brutally beaten so much so that you can't even look at him and think that there is where your shame lies on his back as it's beaten what's keeping you from offloading the weight that you are carrying around every day it isn't jesus it isn't that his sacrifice isn't enough are you willing to offload it that's the question now i realize that that's, that um, i even pray that some in here today are still testing the waters with Christianity, uh, that, that maybe, maybe you haven't yet given yourself to Jesus. And maybe one of the things that's holding you back is this very image of substitution, of, of somebody taking the penalty that's owed to someone else, of God demanding a blood debt in order to forgive the people that he's created. Sometimes that can be a big hurdle to get over. And if that's where you are, if you're still, if you're saying, okay, I get this image of substitution, and it, it, it even sounds great, I'd love to be able to have somebody stand for me and take my sin and my sorrow on, but it just doesn't add up, then I think the next two stanzas in this song are, 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 are um, words that can speak directly to you, that I think alleviate some of the concern about substitution that, that can keep us from worshiping God in the way that we're meant to when we see this picture drawn for us. Um, The first one, the next stanza, and the second thing we're going to say about the suffering of this servant is that his suffering was voluntary. His suffering was substitutionary first. That's the fundamental thing. He stands for us. But he does so willingly. That's the next thing. One of the problems that can creep up in our minds, especially if, if you're really analytical, my mind works this way. Sometimes I just wish I could shut it off, but it just keeps going. And, and, and sometimes... Given this picture of substitution, what we, what we can find ourselves doing is, is just really throwing up a lot of red flags about the idea that, that one person could take the penalty for another one. It seems unjust. 
And, you know, the Bible would agree with you to some extent. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's unjust. We're outraged when some judges let the guilty go scot-free. You know, judges who are on the payroll of the mob or something, and they just get people off all the time. That's, we're justly outraged when the guilty go free. We're also outraged when the innocent are punished. DNA, DNA evidence now is clearing all kinds of people who've been, on, who've been even on death row in some cases for decades, but they weren't guilty. And now we find that out, and we're outraged at that. That's wrong. So, so how is it okay here for someone who's innocent to be punished, someone who's guilty to go free? And, and much of the answer to that question lies in this truth from verses 7 to 9, that the servant goes on his own accord. No one makes him. His service is voluntary. It's voluntary for a couple reasons that come out in this passage. First, it's voluntary because it isn't forced. It isn't coerced. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, but didn't open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter and a sheep before it shears. He is silent. I think the point is, he, he took it. It's not that he was just dumb like sheep are. Sheep don't know the difference between going to have their throats cut or going to have their fur or their wool clipped off. They don't know the difference, so they're silent because they're witless. He's not witless. He knows what he's going to, but he's, he's silent. It would be unjust if he were forced to die like a, a sheep that has no say in the matter, or like even some uh, primitive human cultures that practice human sacrifice. Human sacrifice is known. They were never voluntary victims. This was coercion. They went in chains. They went against their will. And if that was the case here, it would be unjust. But that's not the case. He goes of his own will to lay down his life. This is a passage that Jesus surely had in his mind when he spoke the words that John 10 records for us. That I lay down my life for the sheep and no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He's voluntary in his, in his service. It's voluntary also because it isn't deserved. And this is a key point. No one made him die, and he didn't deserve to die. The end of this, of this stanza, verse 9, points out that he had no, he'd done no violence and he had no deceit in his mouth. It's a way of summarizing that he was, he was perfectly clean and clear of all guilt on every level. He hadn't done anything out, outside violence. He hadn't even thought anything deceitful or wanted anything wrong inside. He is completely unblemished. And yet he dies. He wasn't a victim of injustice, though his treatment was unjust. He wasn't just a slave to his father as if some sort of cosmic child abuse, even though he was obedient. Rather, he, he went silent like a sheep to the slaughter because in reality, he was the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. His suffering is voluntary. And finally, his suffering is obedient. The second stanza helps us connect with Jesus' role as the servant in our, in our salvation. That he wanted to stand for us. That he came here to stand for us. This third part, which comes out especially in the, in the last stanza of the song, verses 10 to 12, helps us connect with what God's role is in all of this. And this is where I really want to drill down as we conclude. I want to make sure that you're able to worship God this week as we celebrate Good Friday to know what, it, his, the, what God the Father's role is in this whole transaction. Because sometimes that can be hard to grasp. I think this verse helps us, especially verse 10. Verse 6 is the first hint that we have that, that, that God is pulling the strings. All of us like sheep have gone astray and turned to his own way, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's the actor here? 
It's God, who we know to be God the Father. It's, the imagery here is, is from Israel's, um, Israel's sacrificial system. There's a day of the year where they call the Day of Atonement, where they would take a sacrificial animal and the priest would lay his hands on it and symbolically transfer all the sins of the people from that year onto this animal and then they would send him out. That's the image that we're supposed to have in verse 6 of God laying on his servant the iniquity of all of us and transferring what we had done to him. Then verse 10 picks up the same action of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and he, the Lord, God the Father, has put him to grief. Now I think there can be a a barrier, as I've said, to worshiping God the Father for his role. And I want to I finish by trying to get rid of that barrier as much as we can together through this passage so that we can worship God in Christ on Good Friday especially. I think one of the barriers is, especially if, if you're still considering Christianity, but, but maybe even if you've been a Christian for a while, can be that, that it offends our sensibilities that God would require blood in order to forgive. That it can seem almost vindictive, uh, primitive, unloving. In fact, it could seem like, almost like we're more loving than God because we wouldn't have required this. I mean, I, could, I forgive all the time and I don't require people to die, so am I more loving than God? I think it's, it's unfortunate that, we, that our minds go there, but inevitable. It's part of the air we breathe where we think... We think about things in light of how they affect us, not in light of how they, how they affect God. If we, if we think, if we allow ourselves to conclude that God requiring death as a punishment for sin makes him unloving, what we're missing is that forgiveness is always costly and that in this case, we're not the ones who would have to bear the cost. And it's easy for us to say, why doesn't God just forgive people and just be done with it? Because we're not the ones who would have to eat it. It'd be like me saying to you, if you got your iPod stolen, that you ought to just forgive the guy. I mean, it doesn't, I, I'm not holding it against him that he stole your iPod. Why should you hold it against him that he stole your iPod? Well, I didn't buy the iPod. I'm not out an iPod, right? So there's no, there's no cost to me. And that's the image that I get when I, when I feel in myself or hear in others. That God shouldn't require this. You know, he shouldn't require death. What's the big deal? Well, it's not a big deal to us because we aren't the ones who lost something. We aren't the ones who are responsible for upholding the moral order in the whole universe. We aren't the ones who are responsible for judging sin. There's no cost to us. God has to bear it. Forgiveness is always costly. Anytime you're not going to make someone pay for what they've done to you, you have to eat it a little bit, whether it's interpersonal or material. And the cost to God, the cost to God is what I, I want us to understand before we leave this morning. One of the problems, I think, even, even for evangelicals who don't have a problem with, with the, the need for a substitute, can be understanding why we should worship God through it because, because God doesn't really die. God the Father is not dying here, right? It's God the Son. It seems like God the Son is the one we should worship. He's the one who gave up his life. Where does God the Father fit into the picture at worst, it can seem like Jesus is sort of paying God off, even. As if God is this angry tyrant who, who demands that someone else come and pay, and Jesus just says, okay, you know what, don't demand it of them, demand it of me. Almost like Jesus is throwing himself on the grenade, and God is the grenade. And that is not the image of the Bible, not at all. In fact, far from it, in this passage, verse 10, where we're going to finish this morning, is the best that I've seen for helping me to, 
to taste what it is for God to give up the servant for us, what it cost him, why he should be worshipped for the substitution that gives us life. Look at the language of verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. One of the things that's lost in that translation, the ESV, is that this word, the will of the Lord, is often translated, and perhaps better translated, it was his pleasure or his delight to crush him. Now we've seen what God delights in come up already. Last week, chapter 42, the first servant song, where this servant who's being crushed now is first described to us. And in that passage, what we're told is that this servant, God is introducing him to the world, and he says, Behold my servant, in whom my soul delights. The servant is God's great delight. And in light of the, of the New Testament, we understand why. This servant is God's own son. He's delighted in him in the way that, that fathers are delighted in their children. It's a delight that I'm coming to understand personally, get, get a taste of more every day as my oldest son grows older, especially as he starts to communicate and, and reciprocate and I get to see him in society, so to speak. There is a delight that you have in your children that's distinctive and instinctive and and, and altogether unique. It's a joy to see your child when you've been away all day. When you come home, you're, you're delighted to see them. Even sometimes, this is more rare of late, but even sometimes you're ready for them to get up from their naps because you miss them. Not often, but sometimes. There's a delight that comes as my child grows in watching him be obedient to me and his mother. I'm delighted by that. I'm delighted by his unprompted expressions of love for us. When he just comes to us and hugs us and says in his own way that he loves us, there's a delight to that. I'm delighted to see him compassionate to his little brother. And I think, just like marriage, one reason God created the institution of fatherhood and motherhood was to help us connect with what it's like to love in the mystery of the Trinity. This love that has bound together God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through all of eternity. There is this fatherly delight that the Father has in His Son. It is His Son who comes with spotless obedience, whose love for His Father is perfect, who is so compassionate that He wouldn't break off a bruised reed, who never did a violent thing or ever spoke a false word. He is the soul's delight of his father. And yet it gave his father pleasure to crush him. It delighted him to crush the delight of his soul. Such was the suffering of this servant that men couldn't even look at it. They turned their face away. And yet his father not only looked at it, but inflicted it upon him. And he did so not hesitantly, but with pleasure. Don't mistake this for sadism. Do not insult this in that way. It cost the father. This is not not some little boy squishing a frog for the heck of it. It cost him the delight of his soul and it gave him pleasure. Why? Who does that? You can almost imagine why he would do it if it was to save an innocent child threatened by some sort of evil or if to save a loved one who is on the verge of death or even to save a good person 
Paul in Romans 5 says, perhaps for a good man, one would dare even to die. But God, God the Father, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He crushed with pleasure the delight of his soul, not for those who were good, but for those who had given themselves over to anything but him, to those who had shamed him by trusting in the things they made with their own hands instead of trusting in his promises, by those who would rather trust the, neighbor, the nation next door than trust his promise to make of them a great nation, the ones who had abandoned him in his covenant, he crushed his son for them. Who does that? What love is this? The Holy One of Israel And there is no other. God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you. We don't. Not like we'd like. If we were satisfied in you and in what you offer us, we would be so much less preoccupied with our own needs. We wouldn't complain the way we do. We wouldn't be bitter. We wouldn't be jealous. We wouldn't be envious. If we were satisfied in what you've given us in Jesus, we would be less preoccupied with the flaws of other people. We would be less fearful and less anxious. We would be less competitive. And we want lives that are satisfied by what you've given us. We want that. And so what we ask of you is that by your spirit, you would give it to us. A trust that in Jesus and through him, you have made peace with those who made war with you. Thank you for Jesus. Now help us to trust him in his name. Amen.